0: You're listening to a CNA Podcast.
1: Some breaking news out of Myanmar this morning. Reports are coming in that the president and other senior ruling party figures have been detained.
2: He says that State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi as well as President Win Myint, various chief ministers have been arrested by the army. Silent strikes
0: held across Myanmar on the second anniversary of a military coup that toppled on San Suu Kyi's Myanmar government. Myanmar enters a
1: third year under military rule.
0: 17.6 million people in the country are expected to need humanitarian aid this year. Dozens of civilians, including women and children, have reportedly been killed in an airstrike in central Myanmar. It is believed that this is the deadliest attack in the history of the
2: country.
1: So many headlines, so many stories, and so many lives lost and in disarray, as the military coup on the 1st of February 2021 continues to trap Myanmar in a quagmire of violence and uncertainty. The TV version of CNA Correspondent has a special talk show that deep dives into where the crisis is now. So we thought we would put together a companion podcast to give you some context to that episode and how we've been covering events in Myanmar as well. And we couldn't do that without speaking to our Myanmar and ASEAN correspondent and the talk show's presenter, Leong Wai Kit. Welcome, Wai Kit, From reporter to correspondent to talk show host, you've, you're on the move. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us why it was in the, done in this format.
2: Right, Steve. It is very, very important for us to do this format because it allows me to dive deep. Because there's only that much we can talk about in my Twitter account on live shows in my TV and radio packages so this gives me a chance to really go deep into the issue so it's like going to a wholesale market and buying lots of fresh ingredients and from those ingredients I cooked up this main talk show that went on air already it's about 20 minutes but I've got other fresh ingredients so I made several other dishes topics that couldn't go into the talk show like your gun laws or aid packages to Rakhine State and to this special podcast that we're talking about too
1: there is so much to talk about when it comes to Myanmar, so it makes total sense to be able to go into it with some experts to flush out sort of the nuances of, of things as mm. well. You've been covering Myanmar extensively from before the coup, but even more so since it's happened. Uh, this has been sort of an ongoing part of your life mm. uh, for the last few years. Tell us how you've seen it evolve or how it's progressed as your coverage has progressed with it.
2: Well, the main difference is right now, and I'm saying this with a, with a lot of Survivor Guild, if you will, because we're both in a comfortable studio with air conditioning while my friends, my my, my team and, and and people I know are out there getting the news for us. When I was in Myanmar, I spent about half my time meeting people. My range of contacts go from the Myanmar military all the way to the NLD side and, and experts in many other areas. We still keep in touch today, but the only difference is that not all of them want to be associated with me right now. So they will tell me things, but they will say, hey, let's let's do a call. Let's not have some paper trail or have evidence that can link me to, to speaking to journalists. So it's a good thing that in my few years in Myanmar, I've managed to establish that kind of trust. But getting new people to talk to me these days can be very difficult, especially because it's so sensitive.
1: Yeah, and this is a very difficult uh, time to be able to get information out from Myanmar uh, just coming back to the chat show mm. version of, of CNA Correspondent that you did, uh, tell us a bit about who you interviewed and what they brought to the discussion
2: right so I reached out to two academics they're both senior fellows in different institutions one is Mo the other is Aaron Conley both of whom are experts in geopolitics ASEAN security and of course Myanmar and the good thing is we are friends so in the professional setting we are of course talking and engaging about Myanmar but it also gives us that chemistry and so when we were doing the talk show together it was candid no holds barred there was a lot of Good rapport. In fact, the whole recording went on for about an hour plus. But we have to, for clarity and to meet time constraints, we could only air twenty minutes of that talk show. Which is why, like I said, we have got we've got many other dishes from that uh, talk show.
1: <laughs> yeah, many other things to talk about. Uh, Mo, actually, Mo Thazar, she's from Myanmar. Uh, she actually joined us uh, for our election night coverage back in 2015 in mm. Yangon. I was on set with her as the results were coming in, and it's incredible to think. How where we are now compared to at that time when democracy looked like it was it was coming back uh, yeah. to Myanmar, so I know she is very has a very vested interest mm. and is very passionate about what 's been uh, going on there. Uh, tell us a bit about your network on the ground. You touched on it on it briefly. the sources of your information we 're now into the third year. How have you gauged sentiment on the ground, and how has it changed since the coup?
2: I think people in Myanmar are very resilient and Honestly, what we see is what we get. There's no running away that there's violence. There's no running away because there's footage of all these ongoing violence, beatings, airstrikes. What has changed is perhaps the resilience in the Myanmar people. They have, in a way, come to terms with it, but they still bear that that pain with them. I'll share with you one story. I was just meeting a couple of friends in Malaysia. They they flew to Malaysia. They were from Myanmar. And they were just having a beer. And then uh, at night, there was a loud pop sound coming from, from a tire, right, from the nearby road. And then both of them looked at each other and, and they laughed. And they said, oh, for a while, we thought we were back in Myanmar. And it's only when they're outside of their country that they realize that this has become a part of their lives. Because to them, they hear gunshots. They hear bombs so often that they don't even realize it. And I've got another friend whose family moved finally from Myanmar to another country to settle down and she told me for the first time in years her mum slept peacefully at night without having to wake up. So one thing that has changed perhaps is that Myanmar people are now accepting of the situation even though they they continue to resist the Myanmar army but this is one thing you can't take away from the Myanmar people that they are very resilient
1: Yeah, and it really highlights how it's become part of their life Mm. what we would consider completely you know alien to us to understand how a popping tyre could suddenly bring back the image or the the sound or the memory of perhaps a gunfire yeah exactly really is quite harrowing to learn these things like it it's been three years, though. What have you seen, or what would you say are misconceptions about what's going on in Myanmar that casual observers might not realize or might not think about?
2: Well, it's it's a very tough question that that you're asking me, Steve, because it's very hard to pinpoint on a few things. But I will say that a lot of what's happening right now in Myanmar has got deep-seated linkages to history. The Myanmar army, for instance, they see themselves as saviors of the country custodians of the country having played a a big part in the independence of Myanmar and since then they've always had a hand in governance in fact up till Don San Suu Kyi's time which she was trying to change the constitution 25% of the seats of the parliamentary seats were reserved for the military as for the activists and the democracy movement it is again, a part of history of Myanmar because we've got the very famous uprisings from the 1988 protests as well as your Saffron Revolution. So to the Myanmar people, being out on the streets to have their voices heard for activists to, to go out and risk their lives, it is something that is in them. And to a certain extent, people going out to the streets as well as going on the ground to fight for democracy and sacrificing their lives, this is something that's also in the Myanmar people too because Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, died a national hero he was assassinated and up to today Myanmar people still celebrate martyrs day so in a way perhaps we don't realize that people are so loving of their country that they're willing to die for it also because of this background and culture of martyrdom in Myanmar
1: it's incredible what the people in Myanmar have had to go through and what has become almost a way of life yeah. uh, for them as well. I want to get your thoughts more on the military. Uh, coming up next on CNA Correspondent, more behind the scenes from our Myanmar TV special and what the future holds for Myanmar as the military steps up fighting that's affected the country's own people who have been doubly impacted by Cyclone Mocha. <laughs>
0: There was a time in the middle of last year when it seemed that the China we're familiar with was a completely different place. When the rest of the world moved on from the COVID-19 pandemic, as many as 300 million Chinese people were under some form of a mandatory lockdown.
1: There were only two things on my mind, to find food and to not go crazy.
0: Then suddenly, the people decided to take things into their own hands. For the first time in more than 30 years, protests swept through China. And just like that, Zero COVID ended. Join me, we do, for a look back at the extraordinary year in China and hear how it might have changed the country for good. Catch Red Wall Inside China's Zero-Covid World, a two-part podcast series by CNA. It's available now on the CNA and Me Listen apps, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts.
1: You're back with me, Steve Ly, and I'm Myanmar and ASEAN correspondent Young Wei and I just want to play a short clip from the TV version that Wei was working on.
2: More and more we are seeing reports and anecdotes of villages mass-burned or beheaded. What do you think, Aaron, caused this shift? So again, I think this speaks to the manpower shortage that the military has, that it's not able to prosecute this conflict in the way that it prosecuted past
1: conflicts. And so it wants images of those beheadings uh, and those arson attacks on villages to be spread far and wide, to intimidate the population, to make it clear that if you do provide support in terms of food or housing, Uh, or moral support to local defense forces or people's defense forces or the NUG more broadly, that something like this might happen to your village or to your family members or your friends. And so uh, that's the message that they're trying to send. Waikid, there are some gruesome things happening in Myanmar. You said it before, we can't get away from the fact. Help us understand the military better. What is their end game and why do they seem so willing to inflict such atrocities on their own people?
2: Yeah, I think the end game for the Myanmar army is to continue to hold on to power. I've been speaking to sources who who are close to Minna online, and they point out that since day one, he's always hankered after power. So he's very keen for people to call him prime minister, for people to legitimize his, his position. So the end game for the Myanmar military is to hold on to power for as long as they can. As to why they're so willing to kill people, I mean, we've heard earlier from my from, guest Aaron Conley that they now behead people as a message to their enemies. Don't mess with us because this will be your consequence. And I've seen so many images of beheaded bodies, mutilated bodies, their, their intestines being put out of their bodies and, and, and children being burned. And these are actually very strong messaging. Now, the Myanmar army, we have to remember... Is an active army. They have been in conflict and have been in civil war for the last 70 years, even before the military coup. So to them, it is not a matter of learning to kill. Killing the enemies is part and parcel of their lives. And perhaps because of this coup, because of the conflicts that has gone out of control, they have gone that step from just shooting your enemy to mutilating their bodies just to send that message.
1: And you mentioned that they see themselves as saviors of the country.
2: This is a conflicting image, isn't it? Because at the same time, you want to hold on to power, you think that you're doing the best for your country, but this is not what the rest of the world see. Because what we are seeing is that you are abusing your power, you are holding on to power by killing civilians and killing your enemies. Or rather, killing your enemies and killing civilians in the process.
1: It it's clear that the military is in power and that they're carrying out some really atrocious acts on a lot of the civilian population. But they don't have control over the whole country, do they?
2: They don't. I think based on statistics shared by both sides. Let's start with the opposing national unity government. They claim that they have control of nearly half of Myanmar. And that's because they're working with ethnic armies and they also have their own People's Defence Force on the ground. So according to the NUG, they have control of nearly half of the country. And they have also set up their own versions of your criminal court systems, your police forces, and trying to protect civilians on their side. From the Myanmar military side, we know that they, they, they're not in control of all parts of Myanmar because I think there was an interview given by one of the Myanmar spokesperson where he said that Myanmar will roll out general elections when all of Myanmar's 300-over townships are stable. They say right now it's only about 60%. And so by that admission, the Myanmar army is basically saying that we only have control about 60% of the country. So if you put the METs, together, it does kind of make sense that the NUG has perhaps control of nearly half and the Myanmar army does not. And I think it all boils down to the ongoing movement of resisting the Myanmar army. The People's Defence Force are on the ground, like I said, trying to attack the Myanmar army. They have targeted their army air bases because they want to stop airstrikes from happening. They have targeted supporters of the Myanmar army. In fact, just recently, there was a very high profile singer who is a prominent supporter of the Myanmar army. She was gunned down near her home and she died later in hospital. So there have been cases of supporters being assassinated. And of course, there are cases of airstrikes that the Myanmar army has launched to, to attack their, their opponents and at the, at the same time, killing civilians in the process.
1: Yeah, and as if things weren't hard enough, a cyclone Mocha swept through Myanmar as well
2: recently. Tell us more about the challenges that the people of Myanmar are facing. I think people need aid immediately. There was a delay in sending aid into Myanmar. But as we speak, UN aid as well as ASEAN aid has already reached Myanmar. More are trickling in. But the big question is, To whom will the aid really go to? Because the Myanmar army wants to be in control. They want to be the ones to disseminate the aid. But it's going to be difficult also because the main area that is hit is Rakhine state and the powerful Arakan army controls certain parts of of that state. So it's going to be difficult for Arakan army, for instance, to get aid if it's sent through the Myanmar army. And the Arakan army are the ones that are opposed to the military? Well, they have been in conflict and there is an uneasy truce for now. So the thing is, it's going to be tricky because if aid does go to Arakan army, then perhaps the Myanmar army may see it as, oh, they're being legitimized and that could be a trigger for even more conflict. So here we are trying to send aid to people who need it we also have to consider whether the aid really reaches them and also the sensitivities of it, the politics behind it, whether or not it will trigger yet another clash between the Arakan army and the Myanmar army. Yeah, another flashpoint is
1: is the last thing that, that Myanmar needs, but just really does highlight how complicated uh, the situation is in Myanmar with these different factions and with a military that doesn't have complete control over over the country. There's been a lot of talk and outrage, but what has the international community done in response to this crisis? And what role does ASEAN have in neighboring countries? What role has it played in, in trying to resolve this crisis? Because, you know, we're two plus years on mm. and it doesn't seem to be getting better. It only seems to be getting worse.
2: Yeah, it is difficult because if your neighbours are quarrelling, if they're fighting, if they're taking a chopper to hack their spouse in, in, in the midst of their quarrel, your neighbours can't get in if you, they don't open the gate. And it's difficult to, to interfere because there are rules that the international community have to play by. So what the international community has done so far is perhaps to be more vocal, sanctions against Myanmar, but all these, to be honest, have very little impact on Myanmar. They all throw their weight behind ASEAN, being the main block to help find a resolution. But ASEAN's hands are tied. Firstly, because there is no formal mechanism to resolve disputes. So they cannot force Myanmar to the table to say, look, this is a problem, we have to solve it. Mothuza had quoted a former diplomat saying that we have to remember what ASEAN is not. ASEAN cannot put boots on the ground. ASEAN cannot interfere. So these are some of the things that ASEAN is subjected to. They they do their best to roll out the five-point consensus, but if the army doesn't reciprocate, there is little that they can do. There is also this track 1.5 talks that neighbouring countries are holding directly with the Myanmar army. So all five of Myanmar's neighbours, Bangladesh, India, China, Laos and Thailand, as well as ASEAN Chair, Indonesia, Cambodia and Vietnam, are involved in those 1.5 talks. The idea, of course, is to complement talks that ASEAN is trying to hold and and efforts that ASEAN is trying to, to roll out. But Mothuza said that this can only work if the focus remains. Let's take a listen to what she said.
0: They can be complementary if they take into consideration uh, what ASEAN is trying to do and uh, look at uh, look at that regional interest rather than pursuing very specific, narrow, uh, more domestic-oriented types of interest due to whatever proximity. Um, the, 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 the countries that are convening these Track 1.5 meetings have with Myanmar. So again, it's, it's important who's at the table, who's being engaged, the way they are being engaged and uh, to what end, and also not to send that message that um, there's, there's one dominant stakeholder or one sole interlocutor above all others.
1: it listening to Mo there, it almost sounds like it, it gets even more complicated with the more players that get involved. And at the same time, there can't be just one player that's Mm. involved in trying to negotiate with Myanmar. It's hard to see a way forward.
2: It is. No matter how many talk shows we host, no matter how many people we talk to off record, there is no end in sight. Nobody has a clear idea. Of course, some would be more vocal. Some, such as a former diplomat I spoke to, said, you know, the only way now is for ASEAN to re-engage the Myanmar army meaningfully. Don't isolate them. And we've seen this call being made at the recent ASEAN summit that some ASEAN member states say that, you know, oh, ASEAN's purpose of isolating Myanmar has served its purpose. It's time to re-engage them. So some will have such views, but others would perhaps say, let's press on because the Myanmar army will need to learn the hard way that you cannot bully civilians into holding, or rather you cannot bully civilians so that you can hold on to power.
1: In the TV episode, you asked your guests if they thought the Myanmar army would be emboldened because ASEAN up until now has not done anything concrete to bring it to task or to push Myanmar to do some form of to make some form of progress, it is important for us to be critical and ask these questions of ASEAN and the international community then to sort of flush out or get to the bottom of why things can or can't move.
2: Yes, that's right. And these inconvenient questions are sometimes quite difficult to ask. Look, it's it's very obvious that ASEAN's diplomats were attacked in Taunggyi recently and yet all ASEAN could do was issue strongly worded statements. No known action is taken. So of course you'll have to then question whether or not the Myanmar army would be emboldened and it is important for us to ask these questions not just to ASEAN in fact in the early days I've spoken to the Myanmar army and asked them why are you so convinced that there is electoral fraud that you must seize power and you must launch a coup and the Myanmar army took time to explain to me show me evidence of the electoral fraud back then of course we reported what they said and balanced our story. But at the same time, you can't help but also ask the MIMARAMI if you're so concerned about the country. Why then are you killing civilians and, and children are dying, women are being killed? Now, at the same time, you also cannot avoid asking the popular and the opposition national unity government. On many occasions, I've asked them, do you feel partly responsible for, for the violence? Because it takes two hands to clap. One you have also mentioned that the NUG is now stepping up offensives against the Myanmar army. There are assassinations against their supporters. These difficult questions have to be asked because they may give you a magic answer. But even if they don't, it forces us to think deep and wide and perhaps create more conversations. If you agree, why? If you don't agree, why? And perhaps with all these questions, it helps people to grasp the, the crisis of Myanmar a little bit better.
1: And with that in mind then, what do you hope viewers of the TV version of this podcast will take away with them uh, when it comes to this ongoing crisis in Myanmar?
2: Empathy. Because as a journalist, you and I, Steve, have to be objective in our professional capacity. So I'm hoping that viewers can be empathetic because like I said earlier, Myanmar people are very resilient and you don't know that they actually have sad backstories. I'll share with you two encounters. I think very early on into the coup, I was on the streets and I saw what appears to be a Myanmar domestic helper because she has this yellow buck Tanaka, that she was wearing. Mm -hmm. She was sitting at the bus stop and she was looking into a phone and crying. And so I walked a bit closer to see what she was looking at. These were the same videos that I've seen. Videos of Myanmar army soldiers beating protesters and she was just crying into a phone. There were no words I had for her. I was just overwhelmed with this wave of sadness. And more recently, I was talking to Sai and, and he's on our podcast team in April. I saw him at the Lyft lobby and I said, Hey, Sai, happy tinjan. Yeah. That Sai, was the, just
1: for our listeners, uh, Sai is from Myanmar.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so I said, Hey, Sai, happy Tinjan," because that was the Myanmar Water Festival week leading to the Myanmar New Year. But at the same time, during that period, the Myanmar army had admitted to launching airstrikes in one part of the country that killed about 170 people. And so Sai's immediate response was he, he smiled and waved and said, Yeah, it's not so happy. And then it hit me that, Look, People can go about, Myanmar people can go about on their day to day and they can function well because they're very resilient. But we tend to forget that they care a lot about their country. So it would help a little bit if we are more empathetic to the people around us. Surely we will have connections with Myanmar. We will know that friend or a colleague or have people who've worked with Myanmar before. So I'm hoping, Steve, that our listeners, our viewers can take away some empathy from this podcast. And at the same time, perhaps find ways to understand this crisis a little bit better.
1: Thank you, Waikid. It's been great to have you with me here. We're going to uh, leave the conversation uh, for now uh, for this ongoing story of Myanmar. But where can our listeners find you to keep up with developments out of
2: Myanmar? Well, if you guys are on Twitter, you can follow me at, at I tweet almost Every hour of the day, as soon as I have information. But if you want more in-depth pieces, please tune in to CNA, where I'll share with you sources and context during my live crosses on our programs.
1: All right, do stay tuned for more from Waikid across all of CNA's platforms and on Twitter as well. Thanks, Waikid. As Waikid explained, there is no easy fix or even a clear path ahead when it comes to the crisis in Myanmar. The military shows no sign of stopping, changing course or relinquishing its grip on power even if that grip is only enough to keep a destabilizing status quo and not enough to govern effectively. While this continues, it is the people of Myanmar that will continue to suffer. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30pm. You can also catch up with this special talk show on Myanmar hosted by White whenever you like on cna.asia. Do like and subscribe to this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents. Thank you for listening. Our podcast team is made up of Cy E. Wint, Crispina
0: Robert, Clara Ong, and me, Steve Lai.